listening to Okay. Hey, Damir. Uh, it's great to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's, it is really a pleasure to be part of uh, this podcast. And yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm super curious to hear about your experiences um, as an engineer and at HeyData. So can you tell me a little bit about your career in tech? So basically, I started a long time ago in 2008. Uh, I'm coming from Serbia and I, my first job was there um, as a software engineer. My first languages were PHP and Java. And I was working for a software company which built uh, many interesting applications and SaaS applications and e-commerce websites, mainly for telecommunications companies. Um, on the Balkan, but also like we work with many companies in Middle East and some European companies, and all of those companies were very big uh, telecom providers. It was quite a challenging job. Uh, and after a year or two, I already got promoted in a team lead role. And from there, like uh, started uh, managing the small teams and then teams get, get better, uh, bigger and bigger. And after that job, after a few years, um, I moved like to one startup in Belgrade uh, again. And then a bit after, uh, as a, a head of engineering, I uh, changed my job uh, to a Berlin-based startup. But I was still working from, from Belgrade at that point. We were having around 30 to 35 engineers. Um, team was uh, based in Serbia, but um, headquarters of company were here in Berlin. And that was the first job when I was having opportunity actually to scale multiple teams on multiple technologies. There were there was like machine learning part, there was uh, Android, uh, iOS part, and also like uh, web development. We were building the uh, application for insurance management. It was like um, business to customer application and. Uh, markets were uh, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, and we were planning to to expand to to US. And after that job, um, I moved to Berlin. Uh, it was uh, five and a half years ago. My first job he's, here was uh, in legal tech, and then around year and a half ago, I moved uh, as a director of engineering to Hey Data, where I'm now and where we are building. Uh, solution com uh, co compliance solution for our customers uh, with the accent on GDPR at the moment, but our plan is really to cover uh, other compliances like IT security, whistleblowing, and many other laws. That's Th that great. What short, short overview. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really interesting that you've kind of lived so many different places and sort of worked on on various different types of uh, technology applications. Um, what made you decide to go from the legal startup over to HeyData? Um, main thing was that uh, HeyData is trying to resolve one really important problem for their clients, and this was so rooted in the fact that there is a help that we provide and i was during interviewing process have opportunity to 
see and hear some feedback of the customers, actually, a part of talking to the owners uh, when they try to uh, convince me that I should join. And this was really fulfilling experience because there are people who really struggle to follow the compliance and they need the help and they are super happy afterwards. And a part of working in tech, this was like really nice experience that you are close with the customers. You can really see that what you do on the daily basis improve their life and their uh, daily work. And this was like really nice. And this is now really nice, but was something that I could experience during this um, interviewing process with the team here. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, yeah, this, I see myself there. I see this as really motivating uh, uh, thing to do. And this is the main reason why I decided to join. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like there is a, a lot of like feedback, those like tight feedback loops. It can feel very fulfilling to know like, okay, something's not working. You go back and you do a fix and then it is. And uh, it, it's nice to kind of be close to the customer, like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. And also the customers who you, you see from our customer support team that they are struggling to resolve some problems and we are able then to resolve these problems for them with really uh, software and technology. And this is, this is really super fulfilling, actually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you all focus on compliance. Um, and I'm curious, how does sort of security and privacy fit in with compliance from a technical perspective? Yeah, so uh, in general, both are really important, security and privacy, right? And uh, we are trying to, to make this really uh, automated process for our customers. And this is where you have to understand both. And then like compliance, from my perspective there, comes as a, something that you need to follow. But on the other side, it's really uh, customer oriented because every of our clients this way or another uh, save or process the customer data. And then from security perspective, it's really important that the customer data are saved from some potential um, external intruders. But from data privacy perspective, this is also important, but also you have to make sure how you distribute the customer data across your uh, technology stack, across your company overall, what you do with your personal laptops, what you do in your uh, working environment. There are differences if you are working from home or differences if you are working from the office, which equipment you are using. And from technology perspective, it is really challenging field because compliance itself and law itself has so many details that it's really, really, and you probably know from experience, like in Evervolt and problems that you are trying to resolve, it is really hard to catch everything. And this is where, where technology comes into play. And then where, where you are able to analyze and scan infrastructure of your uh, clients and try to actually help them there, let's say, on the battlefield, so they can notice all the small things and then fix them in real time. And, mm -hmm. and I think like this is where 
technology really plays to their strengths because it would be really hard and long process for people to manually go to every tool, every service, almost every line of code or log and check like, oh, what's going on here? So yeah, I think that that, that summarizes um, the topic. Yeah, no, that you, you brought up some great points because it is really nice now that there are so many tools for like code scanning. And like you said, just kind of like finding those things that um, not everybody is going to be able to catch uh, because it's just kind of an impossible task to to do that, especially, you know, if we look at sort of like architectures now where it's like you've got things running in all different places. You've got the service here and that service there. And um, it's it's just like really a difficult thing to try and make sure that you've got that coverage there. I'm curious, um, you know, whether it's security related or, or just something else, something engineering related, what's the hardest problem that you've ever had to solve? Yeah, uh, th- that's a really good question. The problem with hard p- problems once they when they are solved they actually actually they are not look hard anymore but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, recently we, we were having like some some really uh, uh, interesting uh, situation due to some uh, setup on, on, on our system like we were trying to to uh, deploy our system which is distributed one uh, with um, zero downtime deployment and even though everything should work, uh, out of the box, like because we are using AWS CCS and there is a rolling update of the services, it should really be something that is, let's say, included in the package and we shouldn't care about it. But this wasn't working as expected. And it gave us a really a headache for a couple of days where we went left and right and uh, read into the documentation of different tooling in this that we are using and it involves nginx it involves docker uh, documentation and then at the end aws ccs documentation just to discover that uh, setup itself because we weren't really following the aws recommendations fully uh, for for many other reasons because uh, overall architecture in this way would be better uh, the the Nginx couldn't recognize the resolve IP address actually of the service when it comes up. And digging deeper into the problem, it was also connected to, to um, Docker Compose that we were using to uh, make things much uh, slimmer and much uh, better experience for our developers to be able to deploy constantly multiple uh, times per, per day. and not to expand too much into the details because uh, we, we would need separate podcast. Um, <laughs> the, the the solution at the end was like really uh, going deep into investigating the logs, what, testing this, and uh, analyzing what what's happening, and tweaking the uh, Nginx configuration in that way that actually um, it resolves the. Uh, IP address of the service on every request and then cache this um, resolution only for short period of time. So that way that when we spin up new services, it 
immediately basically discover a new instance of the service or we restart um, old services or just deploy the new version with a rolling update. And yeah, fortunately, everything started working much, much better and uh, downtime uh, was out of the scope and uh, everything worked as it should. So kind of like was hard problem to resolve at the end was really satisfying uh, seeing this uh, working as we expected at the beginning and as we uh, intended to to build it. And it improved, obviously, uh, much more development experience and, and whole company collaboration and uh, deployment process. Yeah, I think that uh, getting to the the heart of what the problem is, uh, like as you were mentioning, when you're in the middle of it, it's it's so challenging. But then when you go back and you look at it, like you said, you're like, oh, well, that didn't seem so bad. <laughs> it's like you have like selective memory loss or something from when you were uh, like in the weeds on it to then when you look back uh, at sort of like the finished product. Um yeah, so I, I also want to ask you a little bit more about like sort of the compliance and, and data protection side of things. Um, now that you work in this space and you're very familiar with it as an engineer, what's something that you wish more engineers knew about it? So uh, I have to be uh, honest and say that before joining Hey Data, my, my knowledge about the uh, data protection especially was relatively low. In previous company, we, as, as we were working in the legal field, we really have a lot of processes implemented there, which are part of GDPR law, basically. But like really this deep understanding of the problems and, and topics in GDPR was completely missing for, for me. And uh, I more connected this to, to the requirements of, of our customers or requirements of users of our software than to the GDPR itself or uh, data protection as, as, as a topic. And mm -hmm. what I would, I, I mean, in this field, general education is really important. This is why we put the accent also on our platform to the G, uh, GDPR training and IT security training. But because like, if developers have general knowledge, then from the beginning, they can implement things which are relatively easy to implement in order to prevent some uh, data exposure. They, they can hide the, the uh, data of the customers in the logs. They can uh, do pseudo-anonymization on time and really make this as a part of, of development process and, and a part of the software from the beginning. So to precisely answer your question would be that software engineers learn what our private data are actually and what, what is considered as a private data and what not. So they can immediately mm. recognize this when they see it basically and can already implement the process or the scripts which prevent uh, unintentional sharing of this data. Because I, I think like in many cases, the people are just not aware that they are actually sharing some personal data, either with the right. third party suppliers or, or within the company or within the, the, the partners who are, who are the other company. They, they simply don't understand that this is not allowed actually. And mm -hmm. 
this where where uh, I I think uh, many uh, more developers should educate themselves is understanding what uh, data are considered private and what not. That's such a such a great point. I think the other thing that was coming up for me when you were talking about that is um, like one of the recommendations we make to people is, you know, don't store data if you don't need it. And I was writing something about this and um, and someone else asked like, but what if they might need it later? You know, and I, I think there's there's a lot of questions that come up like that, right? Like um, it's something that's not easy to think about. You know, you can easily say like, you need to encrypt your data or anonymize your data. Don't store it if you don't need it. But I think that sitting down and like taking into stock, like what, like to your point, like what is um, private or personal data, what needs to be stored versus what doesn't need to be stored. Um, right. It's not an easy task really at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I mean, the, the, the one, uh, relatively common thing uh, between developers is when you are setting up different environments or you want to set up development environment and you have production environment and now you need some kind of data to test this, to, to work with and to build the software. And, and this is relatively easy to do at the beginning and then like just having something which uh, when you need to, to dump this data or to copy the data and this process uh, is done with, with a script which actually anonymizes the data, and you still have amount of data that you need, and then you you can uh, use this data, but you actually don't move customers' data around on your infrastructure, on your personal laptop, or whatever. Defend really depends on on the setup that company use, but it could be relatively easy prevented. But many people are completely not aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel like I'm asking this question from everyone just because it's such a hot topic at the moment. But, you know, obviously AI is really taking off. Um, a lot of companies are very keen to to start, you know, pivoting to it or implementing it in some way for their own businesses. And, um, you know, I'm curious about like what predictions you have when it comes to AI and, and when it comes to sort of like the data protection side of AI. Yeah, it's it's really interesting point in time where we are now in terms of AI. And I think like similar to some uh, previous revolutions, uh, like an industry revolution from human uh, kind history, like AI now, like we are at the beginning of AI revolution. And I think everything is will change and many many professions will come will change completely not only now with, with, with the chat gpt and how we interact actually with the ai but with many other tools which are coming either on top of these uh big language models or uh, other tools for uh video processing image processing uh creation of different kind of content etc uh how this how this affects compliance i i think we will benefit from it as, as a companies and we have to as you said uh, onboard a train because like otherwise it is it is we, we will be left behind and ai is really interesting because as we mentioned already in this conversation there are so many of these details which is hard to to cover and then everything, the, the compliance of the company 
depends on the specific situation for that company. And I think with a, applying AI tools to that uh, will be really interesting. And, and we, we will have different insights or different kind of reporting and advices for our customers using AI on top of all the data that we can have about what our customers are doing, what tools they are using, about how these tools are used usually, etc. What I think how how it could look like in the in the future, I think um, the the platforms compliance platforms will have like as as a mandatory feature some kind of AI compliance assistant, which will be really smart in terms of advising what should be done next and what uh, how how you can improve your compliance based on the data that you provide as 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 a company. On top of that, uh, it's possible a bit further in the future, maybe, but that we have some kind of self-compliant or, or self-healing system where, where you have AI not only recognizing what is the, the, the problem, but actually fixing this immediately. And uh, we are not far away from, from actually um, having the, the AI able to act see the code, to understand the code, to uh, connect this with the infrastructure, to understand that this could cause problem on the security vulnerability or on, on the data privacy compliance, and at the same time, fix the problem and, and push code back and, and uh, uh, resolve the issue, actually. So this is something as, as, as a prediction that I can say, like, it's some really smart platform which will make company out of the box compliant and probably keep it compliant over the time. Is that what you all are working on at Hey Data right now? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that sounds super cool though. Something that would uh, go in and actually identify and then fix the problem or even suggest to fix. Um, I guess that might be like the first iteration of it would be like, did you mean to do this here? Like, here's how to fix it or something like that. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's very cool. Um, I guess I'm wondering, uh, you know, you've, you've had this uh, kind of expansive engineering career. You've been in, in roles from like IC to now like managing and leading. What's a piece of advice that you might give somebody earlier on in their career or that you might've given yourself early on in your career? Yeah, it's it's a bit hard now to 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 say this because I think that the way how the, the development of individuals who want to do the software engineering and pursue this career is drastically changing in the last couple of, of months, maybe even or or maybe sure. last year with, mm-hmm. with, with the emerge of some really so- sophisticated AI, and then it's really hard uh, to predict in ten years. Um, what what would be the interesting so you can now start learning. But mm. uh, some of the general advices that I, I recognize that I wanted to do or I could do early in my career uh, would be that person has to be curious and it's much more important than being smart. Mm. And how this applies on the, on the, how this applies on the, daily work would be that actually you 
have a side projects, you really think about them and then work on multiple different things, maybe multiple different uh, small projects in different uh, programming languages and mm -hmm. different fields of programming. And it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be something extensive, doesn't have to take a lot of time, but on the other hand, has to be consistent. Mm. And this consistency and discipline then like really over the time can compound and refine someone's skills. But mm -hmm. like in the root of everything is being curious, but having this on mind, because people tend sometime, and I was at least like this, uh, I deep dive into my work. Mm -hmm. And especially at the beginning of career, you, you extend your hours and you try to resolve the problems that are presented to you at your job. Mm -hmm. And it is also nice and you can learn a lot through this, but it's still after some time really scoped field and mm -hmm. you have to explore on purpose. And th this would be the, mm. the main advice that I would have for anyone who is, let's say, entering the computer science or, or this industry as, as a software engineering or IT industry, that simply be curious and have some deliberate practice apart from, from regular job. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. And um, I tend to believe that when you're working on something that you care about or you find interesting, that it's a bigger motivator for learning because um, you're kind of more invested in it. Uh, and some, you know, some people uh, are very fortunate, I think, to work on things that they are like genuinely interested in at their day jobs, but that's not always the case. Or sometimes, you know, you're a student and you're learning what you're supposed to learn in your classes. But um, yeah, to your point, having those sort of like side projects to work on uh, is really motivating in its own way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you can, have can any different perspectives as well? Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. I was just going to ask if you have any side projects that you've worked on uh, in the past or currently that uh, really kind of like stood out to you or made an impact. Yeah, at, at the moment, uh, not really. Like uh, at the moment, I, I more focus on, on, let's say, reading books and exploring like ideas um, through that, also uh, doing some courses for, uh, regularly and like learning some some new skills. Um, Ooh. I still like I still like uh, to to do development. So so I try to to uh, at home uh, deep dive into some programming language and organize like projects for myself a bit. But everything is experiments and usually uh, related to to some course. Uh, all, I always keep several several uh, subscriptions alive in terms of like uh, courses, uh, either video courses or or like uh, textual courses. With working environment already set up there uh, on a few cu a couple of uh, platforms. Uh, but don't, I, I don't have now. Before I, I always had like something which is a bit kind of like my uh, small baby project. But uh, these days, last couple of years, I don't have uh, that much time anymore. And then like I can do some something which can be up to one hour per day, let's say. Yeah, that's still a, a decent amount of being able to dedicate um, 
or do you have any recommendations uh, when it comes to like the books or the courses like you mentioned? So um, the platform that I'm mainly using for the courses is educative. It is really, I found it really nice. Like they, they, in the last two years, they, they are really improved, like, um, and you have different paths. They they uh, adding, like, not only software engineering content, but also, like, system um, architecture uh, content and um, the the uh, engineering management content as well. So so it's not only about, uh, about uh, uh, writing the code and preparing, I don't know, for code interview. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, they were uh, only about that and how you can nail some, some uh, coding uh, challenge. But now it's much more elaborative platform and could, could be used also for, for a bit experienced people. Uh, and in terms uh, of books, uh, I, I can recommend uh, only something which is uh, at, at the moment like uh, maybe some self self improvement books. So ah. uh, this is this is really interesting. I, I'm for some time on, on these topics and exploring many books, but there is something uh, called Limitless from Jim Quick. It's really interesting book. Uh, I would I recommend this to any everyone. Uh, and also it kind of like continues on the question like how someone should uh, learn uh, new skills. It's really good that people uh, actually invest first in refining the learning process and this mm. book can help there and mm -hmm. then like emerge into, into learning and uh, attacking the, the, the problems also can help uh, people uh, improve the, the reading habits and, and uh, speed of reading. And yeah, and a book that I can always uh, recommend would be uh, Clean Code, but it's kind of like cliche, but I really like it because like in some point in time in history, it changed perspective, uh, how I approach the, the coding challenges, how I approach the architecture of the, of the software. And it was really like uh, eye-opening uh, thing uh, for me. So if anyone mm -hmm. is out there who still haven't read it, uh, I, I highly recommend that they should. That was like the first, uh, when I became a software engineer, that was the first book that my mentor recommended to me. So it made me smile when you mentioned it because it's definitely uh, it's definitely good. I mean, no matter where you are in your career, I think it's a good read, but especially for those just starting out, it's a good one. Yeah, it, it's a classic uh, usually, but yeah. It's it's really nice book. Well, it's been so great chatting with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives uh, on on different areas. And um, is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? Um, yeah, no, nothing special from my side. Uh, I would like to to advise like um, everyone who who are listening to the podcast and maybe they are they are in the software engineering field that they should educate themselves in the data privacy because it's really important with the AI, it will become even more important. And yeah, they can do this uh, on any platform. They can visit Hey Data website. We have also the content uh, there uh, and it's really uh, easy to read our magazine there and like to get the grasp about some basic topics about the data privacy. And then people from there can explore on their own and uh, find uh, why it is important and why they should care. 
And I think it will become even more important in the future uh, as uh, it's really uh, important that we be stay aware about the, the, the our data, where they are, who is using this data, in which purpose, and simply to protect our privacy. And maybe life in the future in terms of like AI, uh, which is emerging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, definitely encourage people to check out those resources. And uh, thank you again, Damir. Thank you very much.